Welcome to From the Lighthouse. I'm Michelle Hamadash and I'll be hosting this week's podcast. I'm joined in the studio by Kate Ross-Manneth, who'll be talking about her new book, Small Wrongs. Welcome, Kate. Hi, Michelle. It's so lovely to be here. Kate Ross-Manneth is an author, an essayist and an academic. Her non-fiction has appeared in The Monthly, The Australian and Best Australian Essays. In 2013, her essay, The Work of Judges, was nominated for a Walkley Award for Excellence in Journalism. And in 2018, her short documentary, Unnatural Deaths, was published by The Guardian as part of a series exploring archives on film. Kate is the author of Small Wrongs, a hybrid memoir exploring remorse in the criminal justice system and remorse in our everyday lives. She lives in Sydney and lectures and researches at Macquarie University. We are so lucky to have you, Kate. Would you like to start us off by reading a passage from Small Wrongs? Yeah, Michelle, I'd love to. I'm going to um, start by reading, actually, Um, It's actually a quote from uh, someone I interviewed as part of my research. I interviewed a fellow called David who'd been um, convicted of possession and supply, um, heroin possession and supply. And um, I, this had happened 30 years ago, the conviction, and um, he, I interviewed him about his experience of, of um, fronting up to the appeals hearing, the appeal hearing, and um, his kind of remorse enactment that he feels sort of got him, got him off a jail sentence. Um, and um, at the end of this interview that I did with him, he sort of had these, I think, kind of words of wisdom really about remorse he just really began reflecting on um remorse in his life so this is this fellow in his his 60s when i was um when i interviewed him so um this is what he had to say so this is what this fellow david he said you know kate i think remorse is an old person's game it took me years to really regret selling heroin and the regret mainly has to do with my family my wife and i reconciled we are still together But even now I worry about my daughter. I still have a lot of remorse. What pains me most is that she got that protective thing kids get. She worried about me all the time. Someone told her, your dad's going to die. Kids take it on in some way. They feel responsible. So anyway, as I said, remorse is an old person's game. The time it takes to align your personal view with a larger societal view, to align yourself with a larger consciousness, is really slow. For this reason, I don't think it's possible for a person, especially a young person, to experience true remorse between the time they have committed an offence and the time they front up to the court hearing. Thank you, Kate. Uh The thing that struck me with small wrongs um, was the degree to which remorse became this absolutely gripping uh, sort of figure that I was absolutely compelled by um, and yet had never really thought of it as a, a really large part of the legal system. And yet in reading Small Wrongs, I I came to see that it played a part in sentencing and it played a part in parole. Um, But I guess what interests me is is how you first ended up in a New South Wales Supreme Court. Um, So I have a background in a discipline called performance studies. And performance studies is a marriage between theatre and anthropology. So it's interested in 
um, what we would consider, um, you know, obvious performance forms like opera, theatre and dance, but it's also interested in um, performance in the larger sense of that word. So the way in which the ways in which we perform ourselves in everyday life. So the ways in which sociologists and anthropologists have th talked about performance as a kind of critical concept to think about um, social exchanges, behaviour, customs, ceremonial displays of mourning, rituals, all these uh, sorts of forms, I guess. So that that was my background, and I did a PhD in that at, at Sydney University, um, you know, a long time ago. <laughs> so that that's my background. So I I've, I've and I've, and part of that is that I've always also really been interested, of course, in the role of emotion and the kind of um, the um, the interesting nexus between, I guess, emotion, performance, bodies, affect, expression. Um, uh, emotion as belonging to individuals, emotion as a kind of a, uh, as as kind of flowing through a community, like those. So the questions, I guess, of emotion and performance have always interested me as well. So about eight years ago, I was at home on parental leave and I was breastfeeding on and off through the day and the night with the new baby, and um, I watched more commercial television than I've ever watched in my life, and I noticed how so many court reporters would would you know, report on a case and, and remorse would just be um, raised consistently. So we would hear, you know, sentences such as the judge thought the offender's remorse could have been more forthcoming or the judge um, accepted that the offender was remorseful and reduced his prison sentence or jail sentence because of because of this. So I started to become, I, I just, I, I thought, how does that work? You know, what, what do you mean? It, you know, a judge accepted that someone was remorseful. What does it mean to assess remorse? What what does it mean to have your remorse assessed? Um, because in the justice system, I you know quickly discovered is that judges are legally obliged to take an offender's apparent remorse into account when formulating that person's sentence um, or parole date. And yet, how judges evaluate remorse expressions is unclear. So. It's kind of, to me, that was a real anomaly in the criminal law. So I um, decided to start a research project about it. And I, um, because I've got a background also in ethnography, and that's a research method where you um, you do field work, you go and you um, conduct participant observation, you observe people in their working environments and you interview them and you find out the ways in which they make meaning out of the work they do or their kind of working practices. So I, you know, picked myself up and I took myself to the New South Wales Supreme Court and just kind of started observing um, court hearings. And then through, this was in 2010, and through 2010 taught myself criminal law because <laughs> I didn't have a law background, don't have a law background. But um, yes, I, I, you know, basically read and read and asked stupid questions of, of lawyers and judges and things to start to get a kind of a handle on the, how, how the criminal law works. Because mm. I think, I mean, I was fascinated firstly by you, the observer, the presence in the, the courtroom who was bringing such vivid detail to the page that I could, I could see the victim, I could see the perpetrator, I could see the judges, um, which I, th I think is is a, a measure of your ability as a writer. So so thank you for doing that. Um, but the, the other thing that was really quite stunning was the degree to which um, 
judges were sort of employing a, a sort of a strange alchemy of, of mathematics and intuition. Um, and, you know, at that moment where, uh, because some of the cases that you chose to, um, to focus on in, in the story were, were really harrowing. I, I mean, I, I found, um, you know, sort of the woman who deliberately ran over someone in a fit of rage, a, a young man, um, the, the youthful man who killed his friend's drink driving, um, the, 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 the sister of a, of a murder victim. You know, these were really stories that, that were um, engaging with uh, violence and um, remorse in, in a way that made it compelling but then also sort of made me very aware of the degree to which remorse isn't something that you know you can sort of put on scales and weigh mm. um, can, can you tell me a little bit about uh, the different manifestations of remorse or what wasn't counted as remorse that, that you observed yeah, so look, I interviewed um, judges. I interviewed a number of judges and magistrates. Um, uh, obviously, also interviewed you know lawyers, um, victims, psychologists, psychiatrists, and um, and offenders like guys on parole and caseworkers and things. So a big, big interview study. When I hung out with the judges, like one of the first things I asked them was always how how do you assess remorse? So that was just my first question for all of them, and. The, you know, I got different answers. So there were, um, I mean, I say the different answers, but there were there were themes. There were themes. So one of the things that judges sometimes talked about were things like if there was a, if there's um, they talked in terms of a spontaneous um, display of emotion. So if you know there's a court in the courtroom, there someone's in the witness box testifying to their remorse, and there's this kind of um, they're speaking of their remorse and their and the judge can feel it viscerally. That is kind of how judges talked about it. So if they could feel it viscerally, that was to them genuine remorse as opposed to, and this is what the judges would talk about, kind of perfunctory, constrained, confined, um, superficial remorse. So I, I never raised the idea that there was something called genuine remorse and there was something called superficial remorse but the judges themselves would immediately start making distinctions between what they would call genuine remorse versus superficial perfunctory constrained contained remorse so that was one of the the ways so it's something called the kind of the spontaneous display of emotion and of course we could sit here and think critique that immediately and think really wow okay that's interesting Another thing, though, had to happen to um, would be something like um, if there was a remorse dramaturgy, or what I was calling a remorse dramaturgy, which meant that if a if a if a defence lawyer got up and was able to provide for the court some kind of what I'm calling a remorse a remorse dramaturgy, a judge might be convinced. And what that means is that the defence lawyer could get up and say, from the moment the offence was committed, the offender, you know started tearing her hair out hysterically and realised what she'd done and flung herself on the ground and um, then madly tried to um, reverse the things she'd just done or madly tried to... So this idea that there's this, from the moment the offence is committed, from that moment there is this immediate overwhelming remorse in the person who's done the thing and then from that moment on there is nothing but these kinds of um, piled-on expressions of remorse or 
behaviours that the that the judge might you know identify as remorse. Now, another thing might be something like an early guilty plea, and so there's early guilty pleas, but you know that could be um, driven by people um, just wanting to get a reduced sentence because you get a reduced sentence anyway with an early guilty plea. Um, you know that might not be motivated by remorse. So there, or, or you might have a psychologist getting up and saying. I spoke to this client and I can say that this person is very remorseful. And then the judge might say to the psychiatrist or psychologist, yeah, but how can you really tell? Like the, all you can tell is that, you know, you might just have an offender saying to you, I just feel really remorseful. So what does this even look like? Um, yeah. So you had, I mean, one, one of the things that was always really interesting to me was the role of the voice and the role of silence. So sometimes you know, judges, I don't know, seem to put a lot of weight on the idea of someone actually having, as one Supreme Judge called it, the courage of their convictions. So if an offender would get into the witness box and actually give voice to their remorse, as opposed to just sitting in the courtroom silently. Um, so it's, so there were all these different ways that um, were, I don't know, then in my mind intersecting with larger themes that had to do with, for instance, um, the project of psychology, so the idea of us being able to read other people or the other people having deep interiority, or um, then the project of theology, because remorse is a is a theological hangover. So um, it was, um, you know, used to kind of save people's souls. Um, so when we would um, execute people, um, people would be standing at the gallows and then express remorse, and it would keep the moral and social order because we would know that that person's soul would then. Uh, end up in heaven after we would execute them. So then, um, so that's how that sort of worked. Whereas n nowadays, remorse intersects in very um, uncomfortable ways with rehabilitation. Um, it doesn't. There isn't actually an easy fit there in the ways that you might think. That's a very long answer to your question, Michelle. <laughs> no, no, but it's it's also the degree to which I guess remorse. Um, actually becomes a way of someone taking on their own self-punishment, isn't it? And and then where does that actually leave things like rehabilitation and moving forward? Because, I mean, some of the stories that you dealt with, uh, you were coming at, you know, sort of 30 years or, or at least, you know, sort of a decade sometimes after an event. And, you know, there is that real sense that, um, you know, remorse is that which you must live under for <laughs> perhaps for the remainder of your days, isn't there? Which mm. is another really troubling sort of moment because um, I guess the other sort of theological, um, you know, sort of counterpoint to that is redemption. Mm. So if you've got remorse but no sort of means of redeeming yourself, then it becomes a terrible um, black hole really, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, there was a, one of the cases I do talk about in the book is this young man who um, he was drunk and high and he, on the day of his 21st birthday, he killed three friends and seriously injured a fourth in a car accident. He smashed, he accidentally ran into a tree and he spent seven years in jail and um, for, uh, was, um, was it? Yeah, manslaughter, obviously, dangerous driving, I can't remember the actual um, conviction, dangerous driving occasioning manslaughter or death whatever it was um and he, he he was he had to front up to the parole hearing because he'd stuffed up on his parole and he 
Um, he, so he, he had to turn up and kind of make a case to the parole board as to why he shouldn't be sent back to jail and serve the rest, the remainder of his sentence in prison um, as opposed to being out on parole. And he, and you know, it's this cocky guy who turns up to the parole, to the parole hearing, you're thinking to yourself, come on, mate, you know, you've killed three friends and what, what are you doing? There's this, all this braggadocio in this guy. And then he takes the witness box and the, the you know, he gets he gets into the witness box and the defence lawyer starts to ask him questions and the guy just totally falls apart. Like, it, it was one of the most moving scenes I'd ever encountered. Like, he just talked about the... It was it was the grief. I mean, he, he was so, uh, so remor- stricken by remorse that he was paralysed, really, in his life. I mean, he'd been given no real grief counselling in prison or anything... So the parole board, um, bless them, were really compassionate with this guy and basically realised that he he wasn't petulant, he was grief-stricken, and so they decided that he should just go into some grief counselling and they didn't send him back to prison. And it was a real transformative moment for that kid. So um, he... um, yeah, I mean, he, he. So in terms of this, what you were just mentioning with redemption, there was sort of a moment of redemption for him. So he, he kind of, I don't know, fell to the, you know, metaphorically speaking, fell on his knees at the mercy of the parole board, and they, um, they listened. You know, they were all incredibly moved as well, and uh, so you know, and that, and apparently, I've heard reports that the kid's doing well, and you know, he's all right, he's okay, he's sort of. Um, so that was, you know, that's an example where there is some kind of, uh, I don't know, there is a redemptive moment or something. Mm. It, it's, it, we're at an interesting point in a culture, aren't we, where we sort of have some institutions that are maintaining sort of traditions and and structures and, and then um, these, uh, you know, these young men are sort of let out into a world that perhaps doesn't actually have the supporting um, you know that those traditional um, that that are, those traditions that are, I guess allow um, individuals to move forward. Um, they just mm. they're, they're not sort of really present in many respects. Um, and yeah, I, I think that you really brought um, such insight into. Um, both the experiences of the victims, but also um, the perpetrators, which which was must have been such a difficult thing to do to generate that sort of that careful, I guess, objectivity of, of the observer um, while still bringing the stories to the page. Can can you talk a little bit about the process of writing small wrongs? Yes. Um, yeah, so I, um, for two years, I did field work and interviews in the courts. Um, obviously, I was, you know, holding down my teaching position at, at the uni as well, so it wasn't I wasn't there every day. But it was over, for over. It was around two to three years. I was doing a lot of the field work, and I would take really, um, I take lots of jottings on the fly. Um, also, being aware of, I don't know, affect in the room. I just try to. Um, and then within sort of um, a day or so of having attended court hearings or been with inter- interviews or whatever, I would take up meticulous, um, take down meticulous field notes, like meticulous. And in those moments, I never experienced myself as a writer. I experienced myself as a documenter. So I would just try to document everything that I'd witnessed, experienced, heard, smelt, felt, seen, observed. And then I shelved those field notes. They were, you know, I'd I'd 
written up that account. It was not, I was not a piece of writing at all. They were field notes, but they were very, very good field notes, you know, very detailed. So I had all these field notes and I collected those for years. And then at the same time had, um, I kept a journal um, that was just a kind of daily goings-on journal that had my reflections on some of that fieldwork that I'd encountered, um, stuff I was reading, stuff I was encountering in science and philosophy and the news and just generally, you know, being a, you know, a thinker in the world, a, you know, a feeling person as well in the world. And then just domestic goings-on as well. So, you know, the being a mother of a one-year-old, a two-year-old, a three-year-old, you know, as my daughter was getting older and, um, you know, my husband, just domestic life, you know, domestic life. Because mm. I think that was one of the things that was fascinating ab about small wrongs was, you know, in, in one sense we had that, um, you know, sort of gripping courtroom drama, but I'd, I'd argue that as gripping was very much the, the, the narrator's sort of dark night of the soul as they moved through marriage, motherhood and insomnia. And, you know, sort of insomnia, the, the, the descriptions of your insomnia, while at the same time you're holding down a full-time job, while you're performing this um, sort of high-level research, um, it was... It, it, it was it was stunning, and and um, I'd I'd love to hear a little bit more about how um, you came about the the form mm. for for small wrongs. Yeah, it was really hard. So like I took it took me eight years pretty much to write the book, and 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 like I wrote it over eight years. I should say I didn't take eight, you know as I said I'm holding down a job and doing a bunch of other stuff. So it was really a really long time, and it was because the form it was so hard to find the form and to find the voice I realized early on I couldn't and didn't want to write this as a courtroom drama kind of book or a or even in the voice of an investigative reporter like I'm going to uncover unjust the way that you know justice is not being served in the criminal justice system because of this kind of crazy thing called remorse or something like that I wasn't going to do a book like that so I had to work out what sort of what was the book I was trying to do so one of the, um, I, I knew I was exploring remorse, the, the legal, moral and personal re reality of remorse. I knew that. I knew that um, I, one of the big things that I would love readers to come away with from this book is the idea that um, we have um, a sort of, unarticulated, unacknowledged assumptions and conceptions around this idea of remorse that we bring when we make judgments about people who come through the justice system. So we have this sort of formulations around these questions of remorse. And I'm saying like the judges, the courts do, we as the as the public, as the community. Well, I think have you these gave ideas. the example of Lindy Chamberlain yeah. as, a, as a classic yeah. you know, sort of moment of, of just somebody not fitting the bill, basically. Yeah, exactly. So, and of course, she didn't do it, which is always very hard in cases of wrongful, wrongful conviction. But she was not performing the role of, of a remorse, the grieving of, of mother. a grieving mother. Mm. Um, okay, so we had we have got these kinds of unexamined ideas about what remorse is, and yet those um, that material, that kind of those assumptions we carry with us then, and so do the judges when they're sitting in a courtroom and making decisions about someone's remorse or not in a courtroom, right? Often um, people who come from profound disadvantage and are sitting there 
trying to say sorry or not. They don't even understand quite what's going on. And then claims are being made around the, about this person's remorse. What I wanted to do in the book was animate the background. I wanted to animate these unacknowledged ideas that we have about remorse. So uh, what I've what I ended up doing, and it took a long time to arrive at this as a form, was to set up the distinction between event and background. So in the what I have in the book is event is what happens in the justice system. The justice system is obsessed with event. It's all about event. There is a happening. Someone's done something. Someone's done something to someone else. There was a beginning, a middle, and end. There's a cause and effect. There is an agent. Okay, so that is, and the whole justice system is all about event, right? But mostly, we live our lives in background. We live our lives in the quotidian, in repetition, in the mundane, in the everyday, right? So we get up. We have exchanges with our family. We go to work. We come home, we have exchanges with our family, we go to bed, we get up, we go, like these are our lives, right? Um, and what I wanted to do was to show how remorse is this strange kind of thing that still circulates in the background of our lives as in our everyday quotidian life, in our banal exchanges with our spouse that can get really tetchy and difficult. Um, in the ways um, in, in our kind of relationships than we, we have with our, our own parents. Like I, part of what I explore in the book is a difficult relationship I have with my father. Um, it's not difficult anymore, but it was for a long time. He was a very distant and often very angry person as we were growing up. Um, and, you know, and then, you know, what I also explore is a really difficult period that I go through in marriage with my husband. But in all these cases, there's no big, huge event that's taken place. Like, it's more that I'm just trying to look at the swirling soup of relationship where remorse figures in these really curious and interesting and hard to pin down ways because I think that background is what in fact then informs the way we formulate remorse assessments in the courts. Look, I think that, I mean, from, from my point of view, the, the two functions that that performed you know, as, as, as a sort of the reader of that was, first of all, how unprepared human beings usually are to deal with the event when it occurs because we spend our whole life in you know sort of as you say the background and and so you beautifully brought that out both in your court cases but ultimately it was the background story of of what was going on in your life that made that visceral um, because you, in fact there is the event of your uh, sort of uh, negligent driving mm. And it is just the, the fact that all, it really brought home the fact that human beings are, as a, on a whole are not prepared for the moments that they find themselves in and so they flounder. And then the, that brought this added reading to the court scenes, which I found um, utterly gripping. But the other thing that it did was that it did this beautiful humbling thing for the narrator because there's a passage towards the end where you talk about... Um, because, you know, plot... And narrative um, form expectations in the reader. So it's it's well, we want the event that caused the years of um, sort of uncomfortable relations with your father. We want the event, you know, sort of the neat moment where um, Brad says, "Yes, it all comes down to this moment." You know, we want to be able to make sense of things, and the reader, the plot is 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 pulling that feel for causality is pulling the reader through 
and yet we get we get to the end and there's this beautiful passage where you talk about well actually sometimes you know there's not the event or that sense of entitlement of remorse that the people around show us remorse is is a form of moral vanity and entitlement and and i think that it would have been impossible um for that to come across in the way that it did without that really sort of quite um you know raw revealing um foray into into the 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 backstory to and and apart from that it was a fantastic sort of feminist moment because it it was it was actually showing um someone who was both absolutely you know sort of performing in a professional manner you know completely in terms of research um cutting edge research too um working at at, at a tertiary uh education you know maintaining all of those um you know sort of roles while also um mother wife daughter um and and so for me that was it was a bit of a fem- feminist manifesto too so um you know thank you for that um you've had a few articles published um, from your research in legal, in law journals, um, and uh, you presented at conferences. Can you point towards sort of areas where perhaps um, your research has actually made some inroads? Yeah, look, one of the main things um, that when, when you do ethnography, it's a really intimate form of research because you hang out with people, so you, you know, um, so you're with people in their working lives. And what it's meant also some that happens with ethnography is that there isn't sort of this obvious end point then when you just stop talking to people you don't have any contact with them again or something so I've continued to have um, dialogue with judges and with um, people from the parole board and things um, and and you know with the with the head of the homicide victim support group um, in Australia and and so we, the conversation keeps going and so um, one of the really heartening things has been when judges sort of say to me listen on the back of the research you've done I'm now just thinking in more complex ways in the courtroom about the way in which I assess remorse or what I think about what remorse even is or um, so I just think just from that um, uh, in from that that way or that sense that's been really heartening this um, book, Small Wrongs, has literally just been released. So I, I think there will be um, just a larger public discussion now about some of this stuff. And so I think that will also, I don't know, that will just be a, a good opportunity to have a discussion about what we think about this thing. Well, and also the degree to which so many of our behaviours are learned. And so therefore, if we hadn't haven't actually had the opportunity to learn you know, sort of how to behave when we do something wrong or, or, or if we've just from a culture where, um, you, you know, sort of actually the expectations are different, then we may not be ticking boxes that look like remorse and yet it's, there's a sort of a misalignment there. And, 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 you know, sort of a couple of your cases that you explore really did look at the degree to which, um, you know, sort of culture does play a part in the performativity of, of remorse. Mm. Um, would, you, would you like yeah. to sort of share I mean, one of bit? the things that was just so, uh, you know, devastating, of course, was seeing young Indigenous men, so guys in their, like, late teens, early 20s, and they're... Um, you know, going up for parole and you're just, you know, you're just thinking, oh, my gosh, you know, there's just no, they they have no tools at their disposal to work out what enactment is required in this moment, you know. And so 
what's really interesting or crazy or problematic really about um, parole hearings is that they're done um, via audio, um, it's, it's remote courtroom technology, so um, the, there's this audio-visual technology, so the inmate's face is kind of appears on 20 screens around the courtroom, they're beamed in from prison, and then the court, and then the parole board sort of um, listened, like listen to the guy's um, lawyer, his counsel, who's standing there in the in the courtroom. But then the guy himself is um, there in the jail, staring at a split screen monitor, trying to work out where he's supposed to be looking. So there's a fantastic researcher called Carol McKay who's done brilliant research around this problem. She spent t- time with guys in prison as they were trying to be beamed into these guys' courtroom, you know, and just to show how problematic it is. But I was there in the courtroom watching this fella, this, um, you know, Indigenous guy. He's, like, applying to be released from jail. So he's applying for parole. Um, oh, that's he's applying for re-release because he mucked up on his parole, got sent back to prison, and now he's applying for re-release. His face is beamed all over the room. He's not sure where to look. And then the parole board... You know, we hear from from the guy's lawyer about you know the fact that oh, this is these are the reasons why he missed seeing his parole officer because he was at a funeral and then his car broke down, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then the parole board kind of looked at the man and said, "Okay, so um, do do you have anything else to add? Is there anything you'd like to say?" And this young guy kind of looked had that you know panic looked in his face, the panic that people get when they know something's expected of them and they're not quite sure what. And the guy just said, finally, ah, really sorry for what I'd done. Oh, mm. And I thought, oh, God. And, and, you know, of course, the guy wasn't released. And, and so you just think, really? Really? Like, is this, there's just serious problems here. The, I spoke to judges about, um, you know, the disadvantages that um, Indigenous Australians face when kind of being in a kind of courtroom setting. And... You know, some of these elderly judges were saying things to me like, oh, you know, it took us a while to realise that, you know, just because an Aboriginal person doesn't look you in the eye doesn't mean to say that they're guilty. And I was thinking, thinking, oh, God. So, you know, and I'd been told that a sort of cheat sheet had been sent around to judges, kind of alerting them them to the fact that that an Indigenous comportment in jail, I'm sorry, in, in the courtroom, it, it might be different to the way in which, you know, a middle-class white person might be kind of comporting themselves in the courtroom. So there's this, I mean, that that, that kind of stuff to me sounded, um, yeah, I, I just so difficult and I thought, and, and problematic, obviously. Um, I mean, it, I think um, judges are, are being educated more and more and more and, and sort of, so hopefully this will only get better and better and better. But you just, you're sitting there in those courtrooms and just seeing um, the, the profound disadvantage. I mean, what, what you were saying earlier about the fact that in my book I do talk about some really distressing cases. M- mostly, though, the cases I look at are mundane. So lots of drink driving cases. Um, sorry, I'm not to say that drink driving isn't serious. Of course it's serious, but they were, you know, they hadn't, people hadn't been in an accident. They'd been pulled over, low-range drink driving or being caught with a small amount of cannabis or um, they're, like, there are all these different people who are in, in prison for a range of different reasons, um, not not for necessarily highly serious offences. Um, so that was one of the things I wanted to touch on through the book as well is just the... Um, I don't know, just the, uh, 
just the, uh, the amount or the number of matters that magistrates have to deal with and the kinds of um, yeah, reasons people are in prison. Well, look, I think I was flabbergasted at one of the figures and I think it was actually the rural the, the rural judge who needed to get through something like, was it 100 or 200 cases mm. in, in a sitting? And yet she was also expected to do some really sort of complex, and, and they really do feel like mathematical sort of equations in order to arrive at, at, at a verdict. And, you know, I think the, the thing that struck me was that uh, there is so little um, in the sort of common knowledge about how the legal system, the justice system works. And it's as though m most of us, this is perhaps me speaking from personal, it's just blind faith that it does work. And then a book like Small Wrongs, in an instant you sort of get the glimpse into just how tenuous things are because, I mean, it would, it would seem that those, um, you know, sort of virtual courtrooms alone <laughs> would just radically um, skew skew things in, in ways that probably haven't adequately been um, sort of dealt with considered research. I mean, one would think you would almost be better without the screen um, as, as opposed to, to that image of those people sitting around uh, in that room in, in that way. Um, you know, it strikes me that Small Wrongs was a book that came at a great cost to the author. Um, and, and I think so often that's something that's not acknowledged because the book is such a beautiful, shiny thing. You know, the, the, the release, um, the, the launch at, at Glee Books on the 13th of June at 6pm, um, interviews with Richard Seidler coming Fidler. up. Richard Fidler. Fidler. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> slip of the tongue um you know and and so it all looks so glossy and 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 so beautiful and and yet and it is indeed but i i think it's very hard for people who don't um sort of take up the mantle of a writer to realize um you know sort of just what it takes um could could you talk a little bit about that that process for us yeah it, it's so hard like i it was just so hard and it's because um writing books is just so hard and that's what i know that's what you're sort of getting at in part i think before i talk about how hard it is to write a book i'll just say quickly this other thing that's a companion answer to what i'll say about how hard it is to write the book is that a few people have said to me having read the book wow you you expose so much about you know your marriage or your um you know your relationship with your dad and and what motherhood was like and things like that and i i don't this might sound strange but i don't feel i've exposed much at all and i think um it's because i made um some very technical creative decisions to create the narrator in the book who is ordinary so i wanted her to be a bit of an every woman like there are just infinite women who have got a difficult relationship with their father because who may have been a slightly distant and angry person like that's just I think that is so common I think there are infinite women who have a married like a, a go through a really difficult period in their marriage once a baby comes along because as someone said to me once having a baby is like throwing a grenade into a marriage or um, and then this, the shock of motherhood is just shocking, like as in the, the idea that you've got this new little person who's just 
emerged from your body and you're like <laughs> in your like you know just it's it's insane so you know there's this there I wanted to write or present the narrator as as going through stuff that is common um so in that way I don't feel I've exposed anything I don't know I, I don't feel I've done uh, I haven't really exposed myself I say that because I also know about how much I left out so one of the things a decision I made during the writing process was not to write about any events that might derail the book so that might then end up sounding like a survivor memoir like you know because I've had stuff happen to me that I think a lot of women have had to happen to them too because of we're in this me too movement um, me too moment like so I could have gone down that road but that is not the book I'm writing and I think, like, I don't know, there's a, a book out there at the moment, which is a fantastic book, and it's by a woman called Bree Lee, and it's called Eggshell Skull. And she actually, um, she, uh, it, it, it's such a good book, and it totally shines a light on the way the low conviction rates in, in child sexual assault cases and um, and and uh, sexual assault against women. And, you know, I, I look at that book and I go, hooray, and she's written that book, and I'm just, that is absolutely fantastic. There's so much stuff I've left out of my book that that because I wanted to create a narrator where nothing big had happened to her, if that makes sense. It's like there's a kind of a, she's this every woman. And so um, I sort of, um, so in that respect, that has not been the exposing thing, you know, what I've put in the book. What I've, what is exposing is suddenly just having a creative work out there to be um, criticised. <laughs> so, you know, you have a book and then suddenly people can kind of throw a chuck a stone at it or something. That's hard, right? In terms of then the actual sweating blood to write the book, yeah, uh, unbelievably hard, like phenomenally. Because how many words, I mean, it's you six, had? Yeah, so I, I had, like I wrote half a million words yeah. and I've got 65,000 words. That, I think we could almost repeat that. That's, that's mm -hmm. 500,000 words. Mm -hmm down to 60-something thousand, yeah, yeah. and that is an enormous amount of brain sweat. Yeah. <laughs> so I, when I was at 150,000, I emailed Helen Garner. It was 2014. She'd, she and I had met several years earlier at a conference in Melbourne, and she'd read my stuff in the monthly, and she wanted to keep in touch, right? So in 2014, out of the blue, I just sent her this email. Dear Helen, I'm, I have, I'm in a state of creative despair I have 150,000 words of my book. Some of it's nonsense, but some of it's not. I have no story. I don't know what to do. I think that you should write this book and I should go back to teaching the second year students at the university. This is what I emailed her. <laughs> A couple of hours later, she responded. She goes, dear Kate, she was she was in Berlin and she was hopelessly homesick. She said when she read my email, she had a terrible stab of camaraderie because she said it's the most excruciating part of writing a nonfiction book is kind of where I'm at at the moment. And she was so wonderful. She told me, she said to me, Kate, that what's the first line is gonna of your book is gonna come to you. It's gonna feel like a thread of music. When it comes, make sure you have a pen and write it down. And then you've got to spend the next two years tuning the rest of the material to the sound of that sentence. Wow. That's that is that is beautiful. Oh my goodness. Thank you for sh actually thank you for sharing that with us, Kate, because um, that's so generous. 
Um, and in actual fact, I think that that is exactly what happens in small roles. And I think because that's why it didn't feel as though um, there was one thing out of place because it was so beautifully composed. Would you like to finish us off by reading another passage from Small Wrongs? Yes, Michelle, I would love to. Now, should I read um, the, <clears throat> I'm just thinking, should I read the piece at the end about the... That, that might that be read? lovely. Yeah, yeah I'll just read. So this is just near the end of the book. Um, <clears throat> okay. Um, here we go. Remorse, guilt, grief, regret and responsibility work upon us in the sharpest and most opaque of ways. Throughout the last several years, I thought I would be able to flush out every wrong-headed thing I'd ever done and might do, as if by doing so I could keep from trip tripping up, I could keep my daughter safe. I thought I'd be able to identify and categorise my wounds too, all those hurts and slights. If I sought an apology for each thing, pairing every injury with audible statements of penitence, I could achieve chemical neutralisation air would be cleared. I have learnt, though, that remorse need not always be voiced. Sometimes a declaration is required, other times not, and there exists a moral vanity in indignantly clamouring for spoken words. When a person is truly sorry, sometimes there is no sound at all, simply a softening, and that is enough. Thank you so much, Kate. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, you can see the first chapter of Small Wrongs in the Conversations Friday essay, um, which will be out, I think, very soon or will it be was out last Friday. Last yeah, Friday. Yeah, yeah. Um, Kate's launching Small Wrongs at Glee Books Wednesday the 13th at 6pm and she has an interview coming out with Richard Feidler. Yes, on Monday. And on, so I'm doing yeah conversation with Richard Feidler, so that'll be really fun with him. Mm. So thank you very much. Please remember to uh, like our um, From the Lighthouse podcast on our website and more uh, accompanying material to Kate's fantastic podcast can actually be found at fromthelighthouse.org. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Michelle.